Jury instructions. At the conclusion of a jury trial, the judge will instruct the jury how to apply the law to the evidence. Hypothetically, if the judge in your mock trial case were to provide instructions to the jury, they would look something like the following. Please note, these instructions may not be tendered to the mock trial jury or used as an exhibit during the competition, but students should use these concepts and definitions in preparing and trying their case to the jury. Preliminary instructions. One, role of the jury. Now that you have been sworn and before the presentation of evidence, I have the following preliminary instructions for your guidance as jurors in this case. You and only you will be judges of the facts. You will have to decide what happened. You should not take anything I say or do during the trial as indicating what I think of the evidence or what your verdict should be. My role is to be the judge of the law. I will make legal decisions during the trial and I will explain to you the legal principles that must guide you in your decisions. Neither sympathy nor prejudice should influence your verdict. You are to apply the law as stated in these instructions to the facts as you find them and in this way decide the case. 2. Evidence The evidence from which you are to find the facts consists of the following. Number 1. The testimony of the witnesses. Number 2. Documents and other items received as exhibits. And number 3. Any facts that are stipulated. That is, formally agreed to by the parties. The following things are not evidence. Number 1. Statements, arguments, and questions of the lawyers for the parties in this case. Number 2. Objections by lawyers. Number 3. Any testimony I tell you to disregard. And number 4. Anything you may see or hear about this case outside the courtroom. You must make your decision based only on the evidence presented in court. Do not let rumors, suspicions, or anything seen or heard outside of court influence your decision in any way. You should use your common sense in weighing the evidence. Consider it in light of your everyday experience with people and events and give it whatever way you believe it deserves. Certain rules control what can be received into evidence. When a lawyer asks a question or offers an exhibit into evidence, and a lawyer on the other side thinks that it is not permitted by the rules of evidence, that lawyer may object. An objection simply means that the lawyer is requesting that I make a decision on a particular rule of evidence. Objections to questions are not evidence. You should not be influenced by the objection or by my ruling on it. If the objection is sustained, ignore the question. If it is overruled, treat the answer like any other. A. Direct and circumstantial evidence. Evidence may either be direct or circumstantial. Direct evidence is direct proof of a fact, such as testimony by a witness about what that witness personally saw, heard, or did. Circumstantial evidence is proof of one or more facts from which you find another fact. You should consider both kinds of evidence. The law makes no distinction between the weight to be given to either direct or circumstantial evidence. You may decide the case solely based on circumstantial evidence. B. Credibility. 
In deciding the facts, you must determine what testimony you believe and what testimony you do not believe. You are the sole judges of the credibility or believability of the witnesses. You may believe all, some, or none of a witness's testimony. In deciding which testimony to believe, you should use the same test of truthfulness as in your everyday lives, including the following factors. Number one, the ability of the witness to see, hear, or know things the witness testifies to. Number two, the quality of the witness's understanding and memory. Number three, the witness's manner and behavior while testifying. Number four, the witness's interest in the outcome of the case or any motive, bias, or prejudice. Number five, whether the witness is contradicted by anything the witness said or wrote before trial or by other evidence. And number six, how reasonable the witness's testimony is when considered in the light of other evidence that you believe. Inconsistencies or discrepancies within a witness's testimony or between the testimonies of different witnesses may or may not cause you to disbelieve a witness's testimony. Two or more persons witnessing an event may simply see or hear it differently. Mistaken recollection, like a person's failure to recall, is a common human experience. In weighing the effect of an inconsistency, you should also consider whether it was a matter of importance or an insignificant detail. You should also consider whether the inconsistency was innocent or intentional. The weight of the evidence to prove a fact does not necessarily depend on the number of witnesses who testified or the quantity of evidence that was presented. More important is how believable the witnesses were and how much weight you think their testimony deserves. You will now hear opening statements by the parties and the presentation of evidence. At the conclusion of the evidence, I will instruct you on the law that you are to apply to the facts. Post-trial instructions. Number one, duty of jury, apply the law. Members of the jury, you have seen and heard all the evidence and the arguments of the lawyers. It is your duty to find the facts and to render a verdict reflecting the truth. You should consider all the evidence, the arguments, contentions, and positions urged by the attorneys and any other contention that arises from the evidence. All 12 of you must agree to your verdict. My role now is to explain to you the legal principles that must guide you in your decisions. You must not substitute or follow your own notion or opinion about what the law is or ought to be. You must apply the law that I give to you, whether you agree with it or not. 2. Presumption of innocence, reasonable doubt, burden of proof. The defendant, Shay Jackson, pleaded not guilty to the offense charged. The fact that the defendant has been indicted is no evidence of guilt. The defendant is presumed to be innocent. The presumption of innocence means that Shay Jackson has no burden or obligation to present any evidence at all or to prove that she or he is not guilty. The entire burden or obligation of proof is on the government to prove that Shay Jackson is guilty. This burden stays with the government throughout the trial. In order for you to find Shay Jackson guilty of the offense charged, the government must prove each and every element of the offense charged beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt does not mean proof beyond all possible doubt or to a mathematical certainty. A reasonable doubt is a fair doubt based on reason, logic, common sense, or experience. 
It may arise from the evidence or from the lack of evidence or from the nature of the evidence. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that fully satisfies or entirely convinces you of the defendant's guilt. If, having now heard all the evidence, you are convinced that the government proved each and every element of a charged offense beyond a reasonable doubt, you should return a verdict of guilty for that offense. However, if you have a reasonable doubt about one or more of the elements of the offense charged, then you must return a verdict of not guilty of that offense. Part 3. Murder, first degree. Based upon Utopia Penal Code 6.2 and 6.3. The defendant has been charged with the offense of murder in the first degree. The state has chosen not to pursue the lesser included charges of second degree murder or manslaughter. Under the evidence and law in this case, it is your duty to return one of the following verdicts. 1. Guilty of first degree murder or 2. Not guilty. First degree murder is the unlawful killing of a human being with malice and with premeditation and deliberation. For you to find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder, the state must prove six elements beyond a reasonable doubt. Number one, first, that the defendant intentionally and with malice killed the victim. Malice means not only hatred, ill will, or spite, as it is ordinarily understood, but it also means a condition of mind which prompts a person to intentionally take the life of another or to intentionally inflict serious bodily harm that proximately results in another person's death without just cause, excuse, or justification. If the state proves beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant intentionally killed the victim with a deadly weapon or intentionally inflicted a wound upon the deceased with a deadly weapon that proximately caused the victim's death, you may infer first that the killing was unlawful and second that it was done with malice, but you are not compelled to do so. You may consider this along with all other facts and circumstances in determining whether the killing was unlawful and whether it was done with malice. Number two, second, that the defendant's act was a proximate cause of the victim's death. A proximate cause is a real cause, a cause about without which the victim's death would not have occurred, and one that a reasonably careful and prudent person could foresee would probably produce such death. The defendant's act need not have been the only cause nor the last or nearest cause. It is sufficient if it occurred with some other cause acting at the same time, which, in combination with, caused the death of the victim. Third, that the defendant intended to kill the victim. Intent is a mental attitude seldom provable by direct evidence. It must ordinarily be proven by circumstances from which it may be inferred. An intent to kill may be inferred from the nature of the assault, the manner in which the assault was made, the conduct of the parties, and any other relevant circumstances. Number four. Fourth, that the defendant acted with premeditation. According to the law, premeditation means that the defendant thought about taking a human life and reached a definite decision to kill before acting, even if that time was only seconds. Number five. Fifth, that the defendant acted with deliberation, which means that the defendant acted in a cool state of mind. The defendant need not exhibit a total absence of passion or emotion. If the intent to kill was formed with a fixed purpose, not under the influence of some suddenly aroused violent passion, 
It is immaterial whether the defendant was in a state of passion or excited when the intent was carried into effect. Neither premeditation nor deliberation is usually susceptible of direct proof. Rather, they may be inferred from circumstances such as the lack of provocation by the victim, conduct of the victim before, during, and after the killing, threats and declarations of the defendant, use of grossly excessive force, infliction of lethal wounds after the victim has failed, brutal or vicious circumstances of the killing, manner in which or means by which the killing was done, or ill will between the parties. Sixth, that the defendant did not act in self-defense or that the defendant was the aggressor in provoking the fight with the intent to kill or inflict serious bodily harm upon the deceased. If you find from the evidence that the above elements have been proved beyond a reasonable doubt, it is your duty to return a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. If you do not so find or have a reasonable doubt as to one or more of these things, it is your duty to return a verdict of not guilty of first-degree murder. You may now retire to the jury room to deliberate.